Thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast from Redeeming Hope. We exist as a family of faith that follows Jesus and helps others find him by living all of life as missionaries of hope. If you want more information about our church or would like to support our ministry, go to our website at redeeminghope.org. Please enjoy the sermon podcast. Uh, we are in Isaiah chapter 40 today in the first of our Advent messages. The title of today's message is Comfort and Chaos, and the theme is hope. So let's read out of Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 11. I'm going to read out of the ESV. You can follow along in your Bible apps. Your, anybody have hard, hard copy Bibles anymore? Nice. Love it. Yes. Nuts. Okay. Different kind of hardcover. So follow along in your apps or your, your hardcover paper Bible as we read in Isaiah chapter 40. God speaks through the prophet Isaiah. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low, the uneven ground shall become level and the rough places made plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice cries, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, I pray as the psalmist did in the Old Testament, open our eyes that we would see wonderful things in your word. And Lord, as we say sometimes cliche things like Jesus is the reason for the season, let our hearts really know and experience that this season as we focus our eyes on Christ, the light of the world. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, no matter what your worldview, I think people in and out of the church today the religious and the irreligious today, would admit that there's something wrong with the world. Matter of fact, we have a political, big political year coming up in 2024, and the entire focus of every political campaign is going to be the itch, that phantom itch that everybody has, that something is wrong with the world, promise to be a political messiah, I will deliver for you the world that we want, I will make all things right, and inevitably, no matter who is voted in, they will fail, and after four years, we'll go through it all again. This group blames that group. The Democrats blame the Republicans. The Republicans blame the Democrats. The problem is always over there, out there. It's those bad people. It's those villains. It's this part of our society. It's this part of the world. It's this situation in the world. But I think this, this text of Scripture is going to focus us on what the real problem was with Israel and what the real problem is in the world today. And I think it kind of comes up around Christmas time. Uh, and I'm going to correctly quote Charlie Brown, because he kind of paraphrased it. So we, we want to um, 
We're, we'll, we'll quote Charlie Brown and exegete Charlie Brown. He said, I think there must be something wrong with me, Linus. Christmas is coming, but I'm not happy. I don't feel the way I'm supposed to feel. I just don't understand Christmas, I guess. I like getting presents and sending Christmas cards and decorating trees, but I'm still not happy. That's how a lot of you feel, isn't it? This time of year, we try to make Christmas feel a certain way. Maybe like it felt for you when you were a child. You want to kind of recapture that. You want to maybe give that to your kids. You want to get back to that moment. But we inevitably fall short. And often Christmas can bring us family trouble or sadness or ache or pain or grief or loss or troubled memories. And society puts a lot of pressure on us to feel a certain way. But the reality is that many of us don't have that feel-good feeling or it's elusive. And like the gerbil on the wheel, you've got to work to keep it. What if I told you that you could never perfectly recreate that happy Christmas feeling, but that you could have something better, and the gospel offers something better, something more lasting, something based on an eternal reality, something more reliable than our feelings, not a temporary fantasy, a deeper, fuller experience that's centered around hoping in Christ. And I appreciate Josh, as we work together in the teaching ministry, creating a series overview and, and uh, sort of a, an explanation of a question I want to answer right now, which is, who is Isaiah, and why this book? Why are we in this book this month as we go through this Advent season? Israel was God's chosen people in the Old Testament, but the Bible tells us that because they rejected God, they became a defeated nation, enslaved to cruel captors who have taken them far away from their homeland to a place called Babylon. The Babylonians sought to strip the Israelites of their identity, Meanwhile, they also don't speak the language. They're tempted to worship false gods, and they're afraid, and they are hopeless. They've lost everything. Yet in the midst of all this, God raises up a voice. God raises up a prophet named Isaiah, and he speaks to them through Isaiah, a message that is just as relevant for us today as it was thousands of years ago when he originally spoke it. God, Israel had rejected God, and they're experiencing the consequences and the discipline of that. That's what is happening in the Babylonian captivity. They've gone from prosperity and blessing to ruin, and yet the entire book of Isaiah is written to encourage them and give them a hope for the future. So the reason why we're going through this book over this Christmas Advent season is because we are in a similar place, aren't we? We're far from home in several ways. We're far from home geographically. The Bible teaches us that we're pilgrims in this world traveling through this world, and one day Jesus will bring us to our ultimate eternal home in heaven. We're far away from our divine design. We lose sight of our identity, who we are in Christ, and we lose sight of God's promises in our lives, and it causes so much internal strife, ache, pain, and trauma. And finally, maybe number three, we're far away from God in our sin, but God through Christ wants to bring us back to himself. There's hope for us, just like there was 3,000 years ago, actually 2,750 years ago when this was written. Three questions I want to answer. Number one, what is hope? What is it biblically? How do we define it? Number two, who is our hope? And number three, why should we hope at all? Like, why does God invite us to hope when we are fallen and we have disappointed him? So let's talk about each one of these questions. First of all, what is hope? And the hope that we have in the gospel, the hope we have in Christ, is a sure hope. Israel needed something concrete. 
in a day of uncertainty and trauma and loss and grief and pain. They needed a place to stand. They needed bedrock. They needed a place to build their lives because everything around them was being stripped away and stripped down. Without that place to stand, we, like them, are not hopeful but hopeless. So where's bedrock? Isaiah comes. God raises up a voice and Isaiah says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is like grass and all its beauty like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are like grass. So it's just talking about how temporal we are and how brief life is and how quickly it passes by. But then he finishes with this. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. He's saying, here's bedrock. Here's a place to stand. Here's a place to build in the midst of your pain, your agony, and your suffering. Build here. Israel's salvation is a promise, a promise from the mouth of God. And we know a promise is only as good as the person who gave it. Maybe you've had people in your life who have promised you something and have let you down, maybe in a business context, maybe in a relational context, maybe in a marital context. Somebody made vows to you and they broke those vows and it broke your heart. Well, God, the Bible says, is not a man that he should lie. He doesn't lie. When God says something, it is established, it is, it is going to be done, or it has been done, and it's, it's as certain as if it has been done. God does not lie. And that, what does that say about hope? That means that the hope we have is a certain hope. Jesus Christ came. He gave himself on the cross. He was resurrected. He sits at the right hand of the Father, and he promises salvation to his people who put faith in him and follow him. So that means that our hope is a certain hope. That's why it says, for example, in Romans 5.1, we, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Listen to the tense of that, the, the tense of the gospel. It's a finished work. It's, it's done. You don't do your own salvation. Jesus did that. And so, like God was promising salvation to Israel through the gospel, it becomes even more clear, he's promising salvation to us. And it's not, it's, it's not a hope like the world hopes for something. It's a hope that has a certainty to it that is unlike a worldly hope. So let me give an example. A worldly hope is, boy, I hope I get that job. You know, I, I, I applied, um, I, I did the interview, I'm one of the last two or three candidates, I really hope I get that job. You might not get it, right? So the, you're hoping but the hope isn't certain because there's two other candidates and you might not get the job. How is that different than the hope we have in the gospel? It's a certain hope. It's a hope that something uh, is established and completed and done and it's simply a matter of time to appropriate it, to bring it into my life and to bring it into reality. It's like this, when, when I was, um, I think I was probably about six or seven years old, <clears throat> right around this time, you know, we all make our Christmas list. And I made my list for my, for my parents. And the thing I really wanted, maybe some of you, some of you uh, who were around in the uh, early 80s, late 70s, remember this. I wanted a you drive it. Okay, you drive it. Before the days of cell phones, and even, I mean, it, this was right around the time when Atari game systems were just coming out. And Pong, like I, I was around for that when Pong came out. So this was, I guess, uh, you know, late 70s version of a, of a video game. But there was this magnet car that 
sat on this cardboard thing that rotated and you could move the magnet with a steering wheel around the, the, little, the little maze, the little line. Like, I don't know why that's awesome, but it just captured my imagination. So uh, we were playing hide and seek and, and I went and hid in a closet and I'm, and I'm hiding in this, this, this closet and I feel around, I step on something and, and I, I look down as the closet light, this beam of light came through the closet. I look down and it's a you drive it about three weeks before Christmas. I'm like, that's mine. I didn't say anything. I was smart enough not to say anything because I didn't want them to take it back. Well, a few days later, you know, we're at church and somebody says, oh, Derek, what are you asking for for Christmas? I'm talking to, you know, this, this adult, maybe my Sunday school teacher. I said, oh, I'm asking for a you drive it. She goes, you think you're going to get it? And I said, I hope I do. <laughs> do. Do you see what I'm saying? I hoped... But when I saw that, I knew it was mine. And my hope had something behind it that made me certain that I was going to obtain the thing that I had asked for. And it says here in Isaiah, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. The word of God is certain. And so the hope we have as Christians is a certain hope. So what is this hope? It's a, it's a hope that has a certainty about it because it's based on something that has already been done. And this hope comforts us in our hardest moments, our most anxious moments, our lowest moments, because like I said, a promise is only good as the one who gave it. If we know who God is and we know his attributes, that he's not a man that he should lie, that he has a father heart toward us, that he's got a generous heart toward us, that everything around you that you enjoy in your life, everything good that you enjoy in your life, every relationship, every moment of health, every breath you breathe, uh, the color of your hair, the house over your head, the food in your refrigerator, the Bible says every good gift comes from God. It's all from the Lord. It's all from him. That's who he is. And so when he gives a promise, because we know his attributes, because we know who he is, that adds to this certainty that we have. And this gives us comfort in our most anxious, lowest moments. That God is the captain of my soul. God is, has the pen in his hand writing the story of my life. And I can trust him. Thank him for the good that comes in my life. Trust him when evil comes into my life. And, and that he allows that because he's going to arrange it for his glory and my good. Listen to Romans 3. Verses three through, Romans 5, verses 3 through 5. I'm sorry, I did not put this one in a slide. But Paul says, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us because we know that God's love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he gave us. Another, another has been, another done done. Uh, past tense thing that's happened in our lives and so our hope is based on something that has been done we we saw that you drive it in the closet and it's yours salvation it's yours redemption is yours eternal life is yours eternal joy is yours eternal purpose is yours relationship with the father is yours in christ it's all yours in christ and so we have this hope uh, we, we're, we're offering this book as a resource to you from John Piper. And I was thinking of a story uh, that I'd recently heard that John Piper told <clears throat> about. He went in for his, uh, John Piper is, you know, he's, he's older in years, uh, you know, well-known, respected Bible teacher. He shared this story about how he went in for his annual physical and um, had a prostate exam. And the doctor said the, the prostate feels irregular. 
And, you know, nobody wants to hear that. And so Piper said, okay. He says, so we, we, need, to, we need to do a biopsy. And Piper said, okay, when's that going to be? He says, now. And just like, <laughs> you, you, you know, you thought you were going to have a stethoscope and a, and a blood pressure test, and all of a sudden they're, you know, putting stuff places you don't want them to go. <laughs> and he said, he just was like, he says, I was really anxious. And, and he said, like, my the- I needed my theology right then and there. And he said, the, the Holy Spirit quickened this verse to my heart, 1 Theth- Thessalonians 5.9, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, man, that just gave me bedrock. It gave me a place to stand. Right in that moment, my theology became very practical. It brought peace to my heart that my future is full of the grace of God. My future is full of the glory of God. God has not destined me for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the word of God helps us to live promise-driven lives, not performance-driven lives. A lot of religion, a lot of churches, a lot of teaching you hear is about you performing. And so we're walking out of our, we're walking out of Sunday church gatherings going, man, I, I need to be a better Christian. Man, I need to be really strong. Man, I need to commit more. And there's some truth in that. But we should be walking out of our churches saying, not, man, I need to be more awesome, but man, isn't Jesus awesome? Isn't he great? Isn't he amazing? Isn't what he did amazing? I stand there. God's word endures forever. So it helps us live promise-driven lives, not performance-driven lives, and it gives us a firm place to stand when our feelings are going berserk and our feelings are lying to us. That there's a spiritual reality for the Christian based on God's word that is our ultimate reality. It's the only reliable place to live and find hope. Number two, who is our hope? So we've talked about what is hope. Who is our hope? Did you notice there's three cries in this text? But it's not, you might even say there's four. I think Israel is crying. They're weeping. But then there's three cries, and these cries aren't like weeping or sobbing. They're actually three messages. He's saying to the prophet, cry out. Three cries. Cry number one is in verse three. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. We now know what that's referring to. That was John the Baptist preparing a way for the Lord through his ministry. That's cry number one. Cry number two, a voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? The word of God will stand forever. Did you know that John chapter one calls Jesus the word of God made flesh? He is the word of God. Cry number three, go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Sounds again like John the Baptist, behold the lamb. Every one of these cries are a message pointing somewhere, or should I say pointing to someone a hero who would come. Make straight paths. Someone is coming. The word of our God will stand forever. The New Testament calls Jesus the word made flesh. Behold your God. It's pointing to someone. This is all about Jesus. Isaiah chapter 40, written 750 years before Jesus came, is written all about Jesus. It's a prophetic utterance about the one who is coming, the coming Messiah, the final king of Israel. Let's go back to the text just a little bit more, verses 10 and 11. Listen to how it points to him and his work. Behold, the Lord our God comes with might. His arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him. His recompense is before him. He will tend the flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Do you notice how little it says about you and me? His arm, his reward. He will tend the flock. He will gather. He will carry. 
Our hope is not ourselves. Our hope is a hero. In their day, a hero that was coming. In our day, a hero who has come. So that's why we celebrate Christmas and his first coming while we are looking forward to his second coming. And so this humbles us, doesn't it? I saw on on TikTok this week um, this video of uh, these two girls who got caught in a riptide and were swimming like a mile from shore and a couple fishermen found them. And they were just holding on. I mean, they were moments away from drowning. And the guy called out from the boat, hey, you need help? They're like, yes, yes, please help us. They came and they said, you're okay. And they calmed them down. They got in the boat and these girls are sobbing and weeping and just exhausted. Not one of them got on the boat and was like, man, did you see how long I tread water out there? <laughs> I'm something. Man, I'm amazing. They were, they were broken and they were humble. Why? Rescued people aren't arrogant people. If you rescued yourself, I guess you got something to boast about. But if somebody rescued you, it makes you a humble person. And anybody who's in that situation, who's rescued after 76 days at sea or three hours in a riptide or, you know, watch those I Shouldn't Be Alive shows, that moment of rescue is just so, it's like one of the greatest moments and one of the most humbling moments of their lives as someone else comes and saves them. His arm rules for him. He will tend his flock. He will gather. He will carry them. Our hope is a hero. Someone is coming. These cries point to the one who is coming. Verse 10, his arm rules for him. There's no self-salvation here. He came. He defeated darkness, and he's coming again, and he will save us. And we're called to live in the hope of that. So we're talking about who is our hope. Our hope is Jesus. And we are supposed to live in the hope of who he is, of his promise, and what he's done. There's this ancient myth that's told of a man who was born in prison and he never, saw, he never saw the outside world. He heard there, they wondered, is there an outside world? Some people said, there's no outside world. A lot of people said that in the prison. And he said, I don't know, I feel like maybe there's got, just something, there's got to be something beyond these walls. No, some said there's not. Some said, no, maybe there is, but we don't know what it is. There's no way to know. Well, one day a prisoner came in uh, who was next to his cell who came in from the outside. And he starts talking to this, this old prisoner who was born in the prison, and he says, there, there absolutely, there, there's a lot outside. And he tried to describe to him trees and mountains and birds, and the guy's just like, I, I just, okay, that's awesome, but I just can't, I can't picture it. So the, the prisoner who came from the outside tried to draw you know, uh, pictures and tried to describe it to him, and he would get a sense of it, but he, he, couldn't really, he couldn't really grasp it. But the whole idea excited him. And then the guy that came in from the outside said, and there is a prince on the outside of this prison who, who's made a promise that he's going to come and rescue everybody inside of this prison one day. He says, is that true? He says, it's absolutely true. He told him all about the prince and he said, this, this is amazing. And then uh, one day, uh, without, without any notice, the, the prisoner was removed from the prison and this one who was born in the prison was left to himself. And he, and he thought, man, is that true? And the days and days went by, and he started to doubt, started to wonder, started to hear the arguments again. There's nothing outside this prison. And uh, he, he was depressed one day and just sitting against the wall of his cell. And all of a sudden, he hears noise from behind the wall. And one of the stones begins to move, and it pops out into his cell. And a beam of light shoots in his cell, and he looks out of that little hole, and he sees things he has never seen before. 
He sees trees with his own eyes. He sees birds. He sees sunlight. He sees the mountains. This is unbelievable. And all of a sudden, a face pops into the hole, and it's the prince. And, the, and he says, you're real? He says, I'm real. He says, and I'm coming for you. He says, wonderful. And all of a sudden, the guards are coming in, and they're, they're like, this, this is not allowed. We're going to get that stone back in there. The guards are coming in, and right before they put the stone in the wall, the prince says, I'm coming for you. Until then, live in the hope of what you have just seen. And they put the stone in, and they block it off. Do you think that guy lived differently in that prison cell the rest of his days? He absolutely did. Because now he had a promise, and he'd seen just a glimpse of the coming prince. And as we read the scriptures, and as we hear the gospel, that stone begins to move in your life, in your cell, and a light pops into your room. And you begin to see things you've never seen before, hear things you've never heard before, and maybe just get a glimpse of the face of your prince. And the gospel says, I'm coming again. Live until then in the hope of what you've seen, the hope of what I've said, the hope of my promises. So who is our hope? It's that coming prince. I guess I got excited there. And here we are in 2023. He has come, and he's coming again. But let me remind you, you're going to see lots of cute little pictures of baby Jesus around this Christmas time in a manger. And little Mary's just going to be like, oh, my cute little sweet baby Jesus. Can I remind you, he ain't coming back as a baby next time. The Bible gives this picture of this warrior Jesus with a tattoo on his leg, coming back with a sword on his side. He's going to bring justice to the nations, right all wrongs, bring all evils to justice. He's going to redeem and save his people, and he's going to dry every tear and make every sad day untrue. That's the one who's coming back, King Jesus. That's his second coming. So while we celebrate his first coming, let's look forward to his second coming. And finally, number three, why should we hope? Why should we hope at all? Like Israel... We're sinners. So why do we qualify for hope at all? I'll just take a moment and share a story that happened last night just because, I don't know, I think it's a testimony of how God can use our family in the wrestling community. Reese was at a pretty tough tournament yesterday. 28 teams, 32-man bracket, some of the top wrestlers in the state, and he was in the third-place match. And it was, it was a close match, and they were, in, they were kind of fighting for position, and uh, this kid... Uh, that he was wrestling, just lost it, just started just punching Reese. And I don't know if you know this, but you are not allowed to punch your opponent in high school wrestling. That is not allowed. And so the ref stopped it. The ref DQ'd the kid. The kid, you know, went out off the mat. And the kid was like from one of the top programs in the state. Uh, and, you know, we, we, we knew about this program and had a high, rep, high view of this program, but it just, it just seemed like bizarre. And, I, and I, I'm like, as a coach, I'm like, what was that? The coach says, we got it, da-da-da, so... Kind of an exciting moment, <laughs> a, lot, a, lot of, uh, a lot of people watching, and, and uh, so they awarded Reese third place, and, and uh, so we came off the mat, and uh, just like, what, and we're watching the video, and what? we don't even know what he did to provoke that, except wrestle hard, and uh, the coach came up to me, apologized to me, la-da-da-da-da, it was, it was good, it was, it was grateful for their humility, he said, that's not our program, please don't, don't let this moment define your view of our program, and so we were gracious, we said, you know. Uh, we grateful for the apology, and we forgive you. And then all of a sudden, this this uh, this guy walks in, and uh, he was in you know civilian clothes. He obviously wasn't a coach, and he looked very troubled. And he said, "Would you guys?" said to the coaching staff, "Would you guys come outside?" And we figured the only reason we're going outside is be, to see his son, who was just ejected from the tournament in the building. So we went outside, and his son <laughs> wasn't there when we got there, but 
he was just so broken and humble, and he said, he said, uh, you know, we, we just want you to know we're sorry. My son has never done this before. He's wrestled for a long time, and, and uh, we've ne he's never acted like this. But there's some stuff going on in our family and stuff going on in his life that he's facing. And he goes, I think it just came to a head in that match. And I'm really sorry that you were the recipients of that. His father's teary-eyed. And I said, listen, I said, if you took my five worst days in this world, I said, probably worse than what your son just did, okay? And I'm a Christian, and because Jesus forgives my sins, I want you to know that we forgive you and we forgive your son. You've done us no harm. And then Coach JB's on the coaching staff. He was there with us, and Coach Hebb was there. And it was a really precious moment. Finally, the son came. He was, he'd been sobbing. You could tell. We forgave him. Then Reese came. Reese forgave him. And it turned out to be this beautiful, redempt, redemptive gospel moment. And then Josh and Coach Hebb, uh, I, I said, I did my part. We forgave. We shared, shared Christ in that, walked away. They chased him down in the parking lot and laid hands on him and prayed for him. So it just turned out to be this beautiful moment. And... Uh, you know, like Israel, we're all sinners, and that, that humbles us, doesn't it? But it also begs the question, why does anybody qualify for this hope? Back to verse 1 of the text, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem, cry to her, her warfare is ended, her iniquity is pardoned, she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Clearly Israel is guilty. Why do they deserve hope if God is truly holy and lives in the eternal absence of sin, why does he let anybody live? Why does he let any of us into heaven? Why? Should we hope at all? Why should Israel hope? Why should this young man last night, why should I, with all the sins in my life, why should any of us have hope at all? Well, there's, there's a little clue in the text. It says, her warfare has ended. Somebody fought a war for you, he's saying. Somebody took the blows. And it wasn't just Israel kind of enduring some seasons of discipline. This is pointing to that future moment and that future hero who would fight the ultimate war for Israel and for us. Somebody took the blows for you. What was the war against? If there's warfare, was it against Babylon? It actually wasn't. Israel had natural enemies, but the greatest enemy that they had, the one that ultimately brought them into captivity, were the enemies within it was their sin, it was their idolatry, it was their guilt. Israel and we should hope because 750 years after this was written, someone would pay the sin debt and end our warfare. Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald the good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. He will save us. John the Baptist would point him out. He would fulfill this very text. He would point out the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. And the way of salvation would be the way of grace, unmerited favor, unearned love, a radically new way to approach God. And I want you to notice, he says, herald good news. There's the clue. News. It's news. It's not advice. It's news. Advice is something you have to do. News is something that has been done that you simply proclaim. They look forward to a coming Messiah who would end the warfare, we look back at a Messiah who has come and has ended the warfare. Not advice, it's news. Here's advice. A WebMD Web article reported that taking vitamin D supplements will help you get what you need in parts of the country with less sunlight. Okay, that's not news. That's, that's advice. That's something you got to do. News is something that's been done. Our warfare has ended. The enemies of our soul have been defeated. How? through the cross where Jesus 
went to war for us and took the blows of warfare. The Bible says he removed the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, nailing it to the cross. So why should we hope? Not because we finally earned that hope. We finally did enough good to, to earn that hope. And by the way, one of the characteristics of legalism a performance-based approach to God instead of a promise-based approach to God is if you're asking the question, have I done enough? No. Can I answer that for you? No, you have not done enough and you never will do enough. But if you get in that gerbil wheel of that question, have I done enough? Have I been good enough? It's a, it's a prison of introspection and never feeling confident in where you stand before God. There's only one place to stand confidently before God and that is at the foot of the cross, trusting in his work and not yours. Are we saved by good works? Yes and no. Yes, we are saved by good works. No, not by your good works. We're saved by Jesus' good work. So this, this answers the final question I think that we should, our hearts should be asking is, then how do I step in, how do I get in this? Like, how do I step into this spot where I have this hope that's being offered here this comfort and chaos that's being offered here in Isaiah chapter 40. Well, here it is. It's in the text. One of my favorite verses. Verse 4. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill made low, the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places made plain. Do you see what it's saying here? That when Jesus comes and he makes the way of grace and he ends our warfare, then the only way to come before him is humbly admitting that you cannot save yourself. I'll say it this way that the only thing that you contribute to your salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. So every mountain shall be made low. The haughty, the prideful, the religious, the moral shall be brought low. Their boasting will stop. Every valley shall be lifted up. The lowly, the condemned, the broken, the weak, the failures shall be brought up. Say, come on, don't, feel, don't be condemned, don't be guilty, come up. And we all end up standing on the same ground. The moral and the immoral, the religious and the irreligious. There's this, this parable that Jesus tells of the great wedding feast. And he says, go out and invite the great. And they didn't come. He says, okay. Then go out and invite anybody you find in the highway. He says, the good and the bad. And bring them in. What, what religion in the world invites the bad? Every other religion and moral system in the world is this. The good are in, the bad are out. Go get the good and bring them in. And Jesus says, go get the good and the bad. Every mountain shall be made low, every valley raised up, and we all stand on the same ground before the cross. The arrogant and the boastful brought down, the broken and the ashamed brought up, and we land right here in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Look at this verse. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from you or yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. Your salvation is based on a promise, not your performance. Your salvation is a gift. And gifts are given, they are not earned. If you earn it, it ain't a gift. If you earn it, it's a paycheck. It's not a paycheck. Our salvation is not a reward to the righteous, it's a gift to the guilty. Every mountain shall be made low, every valley raised up. No boasting, just worship. No boasting, just gratitude, just humility thankfulness. And that's where our hearts should be during this Advent season. Grateful. 
and the hustle and bustle of what you got to do to make, you know, make things work at home and your travel plans that you have and you know, getting all the presents under the tree and slapping that credit card down to you know, buy some gifts and going on Amazon, all the craziness that you know, is just going to happen because it's a Christmas season, rest. And remember, every mountain is made low, every valley raised up, and you can rest before Christ because your warfare has ended. And it's not based on your moral record, good or bad. It's based on the grace of God. And have you noticed how Jesus could sit at the table with the religious and the irreligious? He could go toe-to-toe with the religious elite, and he could be the best friend and sometimes the only friend of sinners, like the woman at the well that he met, who was obviously living an isolated life, if you know that story. He sat with the high and the low, and you and I can too. When we come to him, we join an eternal family, a new kingdom, a new world, and we begin to see everything by it. Like Israel, we live in times when culture and darkness are against us. There is evil in the world. There's wicked powers at work in this world that seek to harm us, discourage us, and bring hopelessness. Without and within. But let's come to Christ. Go to Him. Bring yourself to Him. Live in the shadow of the cross and live in an awareness of the empty tomb. Your warfare has ended. Your hero has come. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I'm going to finish with a quote. Third century, St. Cyprian wrote a friend, wrote to a friend named Donatus. Here's what he wrote to him in the third century. This seems a cheerful world, Donatus, when I view it from this fair garden under the shadow of these vines. But if I climb some great mountain and look out over the wide lands, you know well what I would see. Brigands on the high road, pirates on the high seas, In the amphitheaters, men murdered to please the applauding crowds under all roofs, misery and selfishness. It really is a bad world, Donatus, an incredibly bad world. Yet in the midst of it, I have found a quiet and holy people. They have discovered a joy which is a thousand times better than any pleasure of this sinful life. They are despised and persecuted, but they care not. They have overcome the world. These people, Donatus, are the Christians, and I am one of them. Are you one of them? Let's pray. Lord, we bring ourselves to you, not our moral record or report cards or merits or achievements or trophies. We lay them down like Paul said, I count all things as rubbish that I might gain Christ and a righteousness that is found in him. We thank you, Lord, that the Messiah that was foretold in Isaiah chapter 40 has come. And that John the Baptist preceded him as was foretold. Make straight paths, prepare for the coming of the Lord. Behold the Lamb of God. And so today in this gathering, we make much of Jesus. In our hearts, we make much of Jesus. I pray during this Christmas season, we would make much of Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that those who cannot say that I yet am a Christian, I pray as they wrestle with the claims of Christ, Lord, that you would give grace And you would open our eyes and ears to hear and see the wonderful things that we have in you. And Lord, I pray that those who are uh, desiring to follow Jesus today would place simple faith in Christ in, in several ways. Number one, to say, I want to follow him. As that invitation went out so many times through your ministry, come follow me, that we would Say, I want to follow him. And number two, that we would trust in your work, not ours. Your work on the cross, not ours. 
that our faith would be in that and your, your promise to save us and that that would fill our hearts every day with the life of the Spirit and especially during this Christmas time. Bless my, my brothers and sisters and my friends here, their families, Lord, their experiences, their time uh, during this Christmas season, this Advent season, that we would be worshipful and grateful while we enjoy the relationships and the good things that you give us all around us. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We gather every Sunday at the Clarksville area YMCA. For more information, please go to our website at redeeminghope.org.